Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. You know we've been in this great study of this sermon that Jesus preached while on the hillside in the northern area of Galilee. It's been a great, great study. And really, uh, that song represents what we have been after and what Jesus has been trying to do in this sermon all along. The Lord Jesus on that hillside was trying to ask the question or, or give the challenge, have you come to this hillside by faith or have you come with some other earthly agenda that exalts you? You remember the crowds had come to him and we've looked at this for weeks now. They've come to him and they've been getting healed. There has been earthly comfort given. There is economic security offered temporally. There have been answers to their questions given. So they've had it all. This is... They're, they're living on easy street on the hillside at this point, imagining that this guy could be their military messiah, their, their economic messiah, their personal uh, physical health messiah. He is at this point gathering massive crowds. And what he needs to do is ask the question and offer the challenge, why are you here on this hillside? Are you saying you're a follower of me because you've come by faith? Or are you saying you're a follower of me because of all the other things that you're enjoying? And you remember we've been just sort of putting the content of the sermon as Luke records it, although he doesn't include everything Matthew does at a lot of points, and Matthew doesn't include a few things that Luke does. But in recording the sermon, we've just sort of been collecting the content into three basic principles that the Lord Jesus is trying to drive home and we're sort of extending ourselves out into each of these principles to see what he says in the sermon and how it separates the true follower of Christ from the false one. You remember the first principle was that a true disciple of Christ understands the right moral conviction. The true disciple's moral conviction is that heavenly blessings and eternal things are what really matter not earthly comforts. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are humble and meek. Blessed are you when other people may mistreat you because of your faith. What's he saying? Look, do not run after the popular vote. Don't run after a life where everyone thinks well of you. Don't run after a life of material goods and all those things, imagining that they fulfill. They do not. They will not. But blessed are you whether you have those things or not. Blessed are you even when they're taken from you. Blessed are you when you become an enemy of those who aren't interested in those things. Why? Because great will be your reward in the kingdom. Great will be your reward in heaven. You get Christ. You want fulfillment in this life? You can chase it, but it won't get you anything. But if you live this life for Christ, then whatever it brings, poverty or riches, education or no, doesn't matter. Don't worry about your economics. Don't worry about your security in this life. Don't worry about temporal things. Concern yourself with Christ and walking after him and then you'll be a true follower and you'll get eternity. That was his first principle right out of the gate. You say you're on this hillside to follow me, then what's your moral conviction? Are you after divine favor or are you after earthly fulfillments, satisfactions? The second polarizing principle you remember has to do with mercy. The true disciple's moral conviction is that he looks for divine favor. The true disciple's merciful deeds are expressed even against enemies. 
People on the hillside there had a particular mindset in the culture. And the Pharisees were even worse. The religious establishment sort of justified condescension and self-righteousness and even vengeance. By their own law in the Old Testament, they had conjured up sort of this idea, this twisted idea that if somebody did something to you, there were, if they were from a Gentile nation, you had a right to take it out of them. Go get your pound of flesh. You have a right. After all, you're better than them. You're God's chosen nation. So you had the religious establishment that had infected the culture, and then you had the rank and file in the culture, just like our culture. Selfish people. We, we think we have a right to get our pound of flesh when we're mistreated. Well, we saw, beginning in verse 27, that love reaches out. You're to love your enemies. That would have been shocking enough. Then Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Practice good toward those who hold you in contempt. Then bless those who curse you. What does that mean? Uh, Pronounce God's favor upon them. Seek God's favor, mercy, compassion upon them. And even do it in prayer. Pray for those who mistreat you, Jesus said. Wow. This is already drawing a line in the eternal sand between those who say they're there for Christ and those who merely want some self-exalting, earthly, temporal blessing. And then last week we saw that love returns more for less. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. What a strange way to say it. And as I said last time, Jesus isn't denying that we have a, a, a privilege and a responsibility even to protect the sanctity of life. And, and if somebody smacks you, you don't, you don't uh, not duck. You actually protect yourself. It's an instinct. It's built into humanity. Those things are great. What he means here is if someone mistreats you, don't be afraid to serve them even if it makes you vulnerable to another blow. That's the point. Again, he keeps driving home the point that in the economy of following Christ, there is to be a reaching out in love and mercy and a returning of more for less. Now, I introduced last week this next little portion of this mercy section, verse 35 and 36. Not only does love reach out in mercy and not only does love return more for less, but love represents God's gracious nature. Look at the end of verse 35. When you return more for less and reach out in mercy, you are a son of the Most High, he says. You're a son of the Most High. In other words, you have the family resemblance. Why? Well, let's just build the case. First of all, you remember that God saved you out of nothing. He purchased you out of the slave market of sin. He made you an adopted child in the family of God. He bestowed upon the believer all the privileges and joys of a child of the king. All that Christ inherited, you inherit. All that God is, that is your portion in the kingdom. And so when you have these privileges... And you realize that because of that, you didn't deserve it, so you don't have any personal entitlements. Then when someone mistreats you, to you, it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to express what God expresses. What is God like? Well, you remember the story. You can go back to Exodus 33 and 34 and read it any time. But basically, Moses 
in order to affirm the character of God that if he said he was going to deliver God's people, he would in fact do it, Moses said, show me your glory. I want to see it. He wasn't flippant about it. It was a trembling and fear moment. Nonetheless, it was shocking for a human being to ask to see the glory of God. And so God said, all right, you speak on behalf of me to the people face to face. You're the only prophet in Israel I'm going to allow to speak to me face to face having seen a part of my glory, so I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by you. And when I do, I will tell you what I'm like. I will proclaim it and declare it while you're being sheltered from having to look directly into me, because no man can look directly into me and live. So in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that's exactly what happened. God protected Moses, and the backside, the text says, of God's glory passed by Moses, and as the glory of God was being manifest in that unique way to that unique person in that unique moment. God said what he's like. And he could have said, I'm righteous and therefore I judge. And man are, mankind is a sinful, corrupt people and I will destroy them. He could have said that. The first thing he says is most remarkable. The Lord, the Lord God. What does that mean? I created it. I'm sovereign it is mine. I am, I am self-existent and sovereign. Now that's frightening enough because mankind isn't self-existent. We are given breath and life and it is sustained by God and by Christ. It is sustained life. God himself is what we call in theology, uh, this is the doctrine of aseity. He is self-existent. The Lord, the Lord God, he's self-existent and sovereign and what does he say of himself in that passage? Compassionate and gracious. I love this. Slow to anger. Oh. If he's self-existent, the creator of all and sovereign, I'm so thankful he's slow to anger by nature. I'm so thankful he's gracious by nature. He is compassion. He is mercy. He is truth. He is love. Now, he won't clear the guilty who reject him all their life and go into eternity defiant. He won't do that. In fact, he promised Moses in that moment, I am a God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children for generations. You want to reject God? You, your whole culture can be blinded and in false religion. God can shield you from the truth and hold generations in blindness. And he has many times on the globe. Boy, when you think about that, you think about the privilege of the gospel in this country, don't you? It's shocking. Had more missionaries come to this continent than sent more missionaries to other continents? I mean, this is, this is profound because God could have darkened our existence. He is grace. He is truth. That's what God is like. So notice verse 35, notice the shock of the contrast. You'll be sons of the Most High. Why? What's the Most High like? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. There it is, beloved. By the way, he himself in the original language is emphatic. He is kind is actually part of the original verb, but Emphatic pronoun is up at the front of the sentence. The Greeks always did that when they wanted to emphasize something. And so the pronoun himself, the intensive form of it, is up front in the sentence. This same God, the Most High, he himself is kind 
to ungrateful and evil men. See, it wouldn't mean much if it said, you know, Jerry is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Yeah, so, so are other human beings at that level. You know, Jerry is magnanimous and sometimes, you know, goes beyond the call of duty in, in being patient with it. So what? Every human being can conjure up what I conjure up. I'm not a cut above, let alone sovereign, and certainly not perfect. Ask my wife. <laughs> but when it says your sons are the most high, because he himself, that same God, that same sovereign one, that same righteous one, that same creator, he's kind to ungrateful and evil men. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, warned both the Jews and, and the Gentiles, but particularly the Jews in that church who had come together in Christ. They were in the church in Rome. He warned them, Romans 2, verse 4, do you think lightly of the kindness of our God? Though, and he even uses the term for wealth. The the word group is the word for the fullness or the riches or the wealth of his kindness. Do you think lightly? Do you see it of, as of very little value, the wealthiness of God's kindness? It's a great question. Notice the recipients of this kindness, the ungrateful, akaristos. <laughs> By the way, this word makes Paul's bad boy list in 2 Timothy. Remember 2 Timothy where Paul says in the latter days some are going to depart from the faith and here's, here's what they're going to be like. They're going to, men were going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, disobedient to parents. Here it is, ungrateful, same word. Unholy, it's in the list. Acharista, what does that mean? Well, charis is the word for grace. So this is a graceless person. No mercy, no graciousness, no compassion, no forgiveness. Thankless doesn't thank anyone, doesn't express mercy to anyone. So in the context here, here you have the people of the earth freely receiving and freely experiencing and enjoying God and his creation in the common grace expressions of it. What are the common grace expressions of it? Breath, life, Right? Unbelievers all over the earth. Um, the word here in its context implies that there's an obvious receiving of something for which there should be an equally obvious response of gratitude. God allows men, sinful men and women, corrupt cultures, entire global corruption of his creatures. He gives them breath, he gives them life. And all the profound realities of being the highest of all his creation, right? Psalm 8 says, God has crowned mankind with glory and majesty. Really? God has crowned mankind with glory and majesty? Yes. In what sense? We bear his image, Genesis 1.26. So that means a host of things that allow you to even sit here and listen with clarity to someone speak about what the word of God says. You have been given a mind and a capacity to reason. Animals do not reason that they are self-existent. They don't have self-consciousness in that sense. They can't contemplate their existence. Mankind does. That's amazing. We can reason. We can take dominion. We can build things. We can have knowledge which turns to wisdom, which turns to achievement, which turns to a fulfillment. We can enjoy all those things. We experience emotion. 
We bear the marks of the creator in terms of love and companionship, the wonder of relationships. We enjoy in the common grace of God family and community and society and and rulership and dominion and expansion and industry. All of these things we enjoy in the common grace of God. And they provide for us material wealth. The earth does yield its fruit, and we enjoy that. And from that, we have heritage and generational legacy and resources and security, all of that. We even enjoy some other amazing things, like a sense of well-being and preservation and protection and security and sanctity of human life. We understand there's dignity in human life. When we look at human beings, we know there's an inherent dignity that must not be torn down and destroyed. It is given by God. It is the image of God born in man. All mankind, sinner though he may be, enjoys that. And in all of that, think about it, you even have the enjoyment of beauty and art and science and sociology and history and even your memories. And all the while you're enjoying all those wonders and, and, and some men and women and cultures give no thankfulness back to God if that weren't enough to make the average human's blood boil. There's the matter of God's continual kindness and patience toward not merely someone's ingratitude, but the most wicked, defiant, Christ-rejecting expressions against him. And those people still take another breath. One more breath to offer one more insult to God. And God patiently forbears that. Luke also includes here the category of evil men. That's just, they're, they're wicked through and through. We hear that and sometimes we imagine the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Bin Ladens of the world and the worst of murderers, liars, and criminal types. I understand that. But what about every single offense from every human being that's ever risen to the throne of God against his righteousness of all the people on the earth for all history? What about that? Every unrighteous thought, every sinful word, every vengeful act, And maybe like Jesus writing words in the dust so that the Jews wouldn't stone this woman, maybe I'll just list them here for you in the same way. Unkindness. What about moments of pride? Anger, dishonesty, coveting, lust, resentment, unforgiveness, blame shifting, neglect, defiance, hatred. God patiently endures all of it, for generations. He allows the guilty to go on breathing air, enjoying the beach, building a business, developing a skill, having a family, taking in beauty, feeling the emotions of romance, reflecting upon the memories of their life with joy, experiencing lifelong friendships, and all the while in the face of humanity's thanklessness, God continues to offer Jesus Christ as a covering for sin. Now you see the point Jesus is making in the sermon. If you want to follow Christ, you want to bear the family resemblance. If holy God is gracious to his enemies like that, sure one day he will judge. Yes, 
One day it will all be over. Evil will have run its course and defiant people against God will justly be punished for eternity. But until then, oh, the grace just lavishly pours out in gospel offer. That's why Luke put verse 37 next to verse 36. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Look at this. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you won't be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. You know, millions of people in our culture probably know John 3.16. Maybe even some could quote it. But there is probably no other verse more preached by unbelievers than this one. (laughs) Don't you judge, lest you be judged. Don't you do it. When sometimes they say that to me, if somebody doesn't know Christ and they say, don't judge, lest you be judged, I say, wait a minute, are you speaking the scripture? Awesome, good job. (laughs) Do you really mean that? Ah, you know a verse in the Bible. But see, their motive is to say, Look, I may be guilty, I'm, I'm not willing to admit that, but I'm certainly not going to let you point it out. I understand that. They're saying you can't disagree, you can't make any uh, moral assessment. Really, everyone makes moral assessments, in fact, it's demanded in Scripture. The context has to tell us about this word. The word itself, by, in its raw form, just means to make a division, uh, to separate out. Right? You make an assessment of, of things that are opposites and things that are similar. You put the similar things over here and you say those are similar. You take opposites and you call out a division between them. These are opposites. And in the moral world, we're called to do the same, right? In Matthew's version of this sermon, Jesus said, you'll know the Pharisees by their fruits. Watch their life, make a moral determination that they're not to be followed and don't follow them. That's why Jesus gives the parable here. Notice verse 39. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. What is he saying? He's saying there are false teachers out there who are self-righteous. They're judgmental of other people because they think they're personally better. They're not just speakers of the truth. They stand above you and they say, oh, I'm more righteous than you. He says, don't follow those people. They're blind guides and you'll both fall into a ditch. So here Jesus is making a moral judgment and a division, and he calls us to do the same. You'll know them by their fruits. That's just a phrase that Luke did not include here in the same way. Jesus is not teaching that you shouldn't make moral determinations and separate the true from the false. That is not the case. We're even called to make those same kind of determinations based on the fruit of one another's life. You know, Romans 16 Paul says, look, you're to mark out those people who cause dissension in the church and destroy unity and purity, and you're to not associate with them. What is that? Couldn't those people rightly say, hey, you're judging me? Your answer to them is, no, I'm making a moral judgment based on your behavior. Compare it with the word of God. You don't line up. Here's what I'm called to do in response. But that's not what Jesus is condemning here. Jesus says to these people, look, if you say you're a disciple of mine, you must understand something. You must have come by faith and not by your own righteousness. 
Because a person who comes by faith realizes I have no entitlement, I deserve nothing, God's given me everything. He has, even prior to my conversion, lavished common grace on me so that I still take breath. And he still offered me the gospel. And then one day, he gave me the gospel and he began to show me my sin and show me Christ and the sacrifice and I was drawn to him and I was given faith and repentance and now I'm in Christ and completely forgiven for my sin. So when someone else sins against me, I've got nothing to say to them personally. I have no better moral high ground to take personally. I cannot condescend to them and their flaws personally, ever. That is his point here. Notice, don't judge lest you be judged or you will not be judged. Don't condemn and you'll not be condemned. Pardon and you'll be pardoned. He even continues, give and it'll be given to you. What does that mean? Give what? Compassion, mercy. Offer yourself in service. And they'll pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. He sort of calls the agrarian grain society as an illustration and says, look, when you go and you get your grain, don't they, don't they pour it in and then they, they tap it down to make it kind of go down further and they put more in? You like that when they have it running over. You don't like getting the bag of chips with half of it full, but the whole thing, it looks like it's stuffed. You feel cheated. Of course, you are cheated. We're, we're all being cheated in that. Of course. But if you were there measuring your livelihood and the grain from your fields, you watched the guy, and he would pack it down and put more in. And if you were the kind of businessman who cheated others, guess what he's going to do? When you come to him... He's going to cheat you. And Jesus says, you have two, two responses to look forward to. If you're an honest, merciful, kind, sacrificial, even willing to take losses while you reach out in gospel grace, then God himself is going to treat your life that way and as a grace in your life to honor his name and honor this principle and even other people will treat you like that. Not all, but many. That's his point. God despises the practice of vigilante personal justice whereby you pull yourself above other people, you say, I'm better morally and spiritually, intrinsically in my own self, and they are down here. And since you have flaws and you mistreated me from a position of the judge's chair, I'm going to take what I believe is coming to me. You believe God owes you fair treatment. It's a sense of entitlement. It's self-righteousness. It's what the Pharisees were all about. Just think about this for a minute. When someone mistreats you, isn't it true that the temptation is to say, well, if I don't do anything, they're not going to know how deeply they hurt me. And so I have to step in and provide the hurt so that they learn their lesson. Isn't that true? And when we do that, here, here are some things you've got to ask yourself, okay? If, if you're going to put yourself at the position of God's moral high ground, okay, remember, he's self-existent, he's flawless, he's perfect, his judgment is just, we will never get to heaven and find that he ever had a greater punishment than the crime deserved, we will never get to heaven and find that people got away with things, no one ever, Matthew 10, God, everything's done in secret, he will bring it to light. He's the ultimate record keeper and the ultimate judge. 
But if you're going to put yourself in his chair, ask yourself these questions when you've been hurt. Here's the issue. How will you know how much justice to dole out? How are you going to know? What is fair? What is not fair? Are you objective? And if you're still hurt, how in the world can you profess to be objective? How are you going to know? And if at the end of doling out your justice, can you then throw it before the Lord and say, this was perfectly righteous justice that I doled out, your job's done, I did it. I don't think so. Sometimes we're tempted to say, well, I treat them better than they treat me. I mean, I know how it is in marriage. You think your marital problems are really just someone else. Now, they may indeed mistreat you, and they may be sinful, and they may not follow God, and they may try to destroy a good marital life. But you're not the judge of that, ever. Not before God. He takes care of those issues. He takes care of his people. He pours grace upon the heart of someone who's mistreated. He's near to those who are brokenhearted. But if you get in the moral high ground chair and you say, you know what, I always treat them better than they treat me. Ooh, how do you know? Who's measuring it? And in fact, think about how sad it is when you say that. Because the Bible says if it were true, you wouldn't say it. You'd be too humble. (laughs) So if it's true that you treat somebody better than they treat you, you never get to say it without sinning. What Jesus is going after here is self-righteousness. Matthew's gospel says, don't judge lest you be judged. He says it the other way. Jesus obviously made both points. Don't judge and then people won't mistreat you and God won't have to chasten you with the same standard, same merciless treatment. Matthew puts it this way, don't judge lest you be judged. In other words, fear God. You you could be judged and chastened by God if you treat the situation this way. In fact, Matthew goes even further. Listen, just listen to the reasoning here. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So again, you got two things to concern yourself with. One is, if you're a cheat and you're retaliatory and full of vengeance, you can expect the world to see you that way, and then when you need compassion, you're not getting any. You're not merciful. But then you got the second thing to concern yourself with. God is watching, and when you dole out no mercy or compassion or forgiveness, he has to bring swift and very difficult chastening. I ask you, if you've got serious patterns of trouble in your life in a particular area, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, how do I know whether this is punishment or chastening from God? Well, look, God's, God's not like a parent who spanks his kids and when they say, what was that for? I don't know, something, whatever. I'm sure it'll all even out. That's what human beings do, right? That's exactly what happened. One time my daughter came to me. I had disciplined and, and they were actually innocent. And I said, it all evens out, dear. You're getting away with stuff all the time, too. So, I mean, you know. (laughs) That's what humans do. But never God. God always has a point to his trials and, and his chastening. And I don't believe he purposely frustrates his children. So the texts never say that. 
So even in Hebrews 12, you know that he puts pressure in your life to increase your virtue. And so I just told the person, just examine your life. If there's, if there's no area where this becomes obvious, some obvious connection, then just trust the Lord. If there's an obvious connection, he'll reveal it to you in time. But if there's no obvious connection, then it's just trial, difficulty, pressure. But some of you have ongoing patterns of trouble in your life, and dots can be connected. You're just ignoring the dots. And could it be that some of it is the Lord allowing trouble in your life because you trouble so many other people's lives with self-righteousness and judgmentalism? Could it be? You don't forgive. You resent. You're bitter. Some of you are looking down right now. Put your feet out there. Let me step on your toes. Let the Lord do it. This is good. This is Jesus' point. If you're a follower of Christ, you do not have a pattern of comfortable retaliation, vengeance, and a lack of mercy. And if you are going to be like that, then ultimately you can expect not to have the full measure of joy and freedom of walking with the Lord and other people's relationships in your life blessing you. You can determine God's verdict on you In Matthew's gospel, it literally says, for the verdict you determine shall be weighed out to you. Hey, how can you expect graciousness when people see your flaws when uh, you're the one pointing them all out all the time? You should tell our kids that all the time. You know, usually in a family, you have a family Pharisee somewhere in there. And they're always telling on the other kids, oh, did you see what they were doing, mom, dad? (laughs) And I'm thinking, but if you have flaws, that's going to come around. You're going to get no compassion from your siblings. Why why do you want to do that? Because we're self-righteous. And on that hillside, there were people there who were saying, we want you, Jesus. And he's saying, really? What about your self-righteous religion, you Pharisees? What about the religious elite saying they're better than everybody? What about the Pharisee in the parable next to the, to the, the tax gatherer, the publican, the sinner? And he's, he won't even look to heaven. He's beating his breast saying, I'm unworthy. And the Pharisee's looking at him saying, well, I'm glad I'm not like other men. You know, I'm not like this guy. <laughs> I'm tithing. I'm obeying the law. Jesus said to the Pharisees, which one of those men went down to his house justified before God? In other words, truly righteous. It was obviously the one who came by faith. I don't deserve anything. Whatever you give me is grace. I'll take Jesus. I'll take him at his word. I'll take his righteousness to cover my sin. Absolutely, I bring nothing. With the limits you assess, you shall be assessed. And so that's why he speaks the parable. Blind man can't guide a blind man, can he? You follow people like that, you're going to fall into a pit. A pupil's not above his teacher. Everyone, after he's been fully trained, is like his teacher. If you follow self-righteous people, you'll follow them right into a pit, and you'll be self-righteous, and you'll have that same life and expect the same chastening from God. And our time is done this morning, but we're going to cover it next time in detail. How can you say to your brother, verse 42, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye out and when you yourself don't see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. What does he mean by that? What's the log here? Some people have said, well, the log is your sin. You have to deal with your sin before you can help somebody else with theirs. Well, really? I mean, okay, no one ever confronts anybody ever again because we all have sin. 
hey, I just wanted to mention something in your life. No, no, you have sin in your life. Oh, you're right. That's not his point. The log here is the whole point of this section, self-righteous condescension. That's the log. You know, you go over to someone and you say, hey, you got a flaw. And you want to help them remove it. But the way you're helping them remove it is by judging them personally as if you have the moral high ground. Well, guess what? You can't see the speck. And if Jesus shows up at that moment, he doesn't go looking at their speck. He comes to you and says, hey, by the way, I can see their speck to help them with it. But you're no instrument of mine because you're blinded by this big, huge log of pride. It's a great image. You're blinded. You're trying to help him with a flaw, but you're not really trying to help him with a flaw. You're just trying to use it to gain some higher ground over them. Real disciples of Christ do not take vengeance. They do not have self-righteous condescension. They're like their heavenly father. They continue to grow in mercy. Well, we'll look at that in detail next time. There's just much more to cover. Bow with me forward to prayer. Father, there may be some here today who just never, they've never to come to you in just faith alone. They've always brought their own goodness, their own righteousness. And even the religious elite of Israel tried to do the same. Everybody okay? Okay. Got some good guys there helping out. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Okay. Good, nobody, everybody's upright and walking, uh, good, all right, praise the Lord, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you that even in moments like that, there is dependence upon you, we trust you. Lord, there's such a, a call and a need for, for those professing disciples to be challenged. Did we come in faith or do we come in self-righteousness? You're always holding out a gracious offer of salvation, but but sinners must see their need and never bring anything of themselves. And so as our Lord said there on the hillside, we, we want it to penetrate our hearts today that true followers of Christ are are those who reflect your love and character even toward enemies. There you were on the cross saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. There you were offering the gospel to so many who slapped you and tortured you and defied you and mocked you and thought in pretense that they could overrule you. Even the demonic forces themselves under the dominion of Satan thought that they could conquer you and subdue your saving work and yet you quietly and silently went to the cross for sinners and we pray that that would penetrate so deep in us that as Christians 
We would speak the truth boldly, even if people say we're judging them. Just speak the scriptures, speak the truth in love. But may they never be able to accuse our lives of unrepentance or vengeance or self-righteousness and pride. But may we be loving and careful and gentle and humble, thoughtful and serving, and even praying for those who mistreat us or do us harm so that we might open up an opportunity for the gospel. We might see others ask the question, what do you have? It's so powerful, I want it. Lord, may we be those kinds of instruments of grace and prove that we are true disciples of yours and not merely those who profess it. We petition you for these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen.